from GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Franco Gawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, can behavioral economics get Americans to stop commuting solo? How Apple, Akamai, Etsy, and Swiss Re came together to buy clean power? what companies can do to prevent plastic waste, and can Madison Avenue help change Americans' minds about climate change? There's no commercials on this show, this week on 350. It's August 10th, 2018. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Back from her travels and joining me from across the USA in the Garden State is Green Biz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello there. So you're back. I am, and I'm enjoying the tomatoes in the Garden State. They're awesome this year. Great. Uh, you were in Ireland. Um, how was that? I was in Ireland. I am a, a bit of an Irish and English literature geek, and my um, trip was focused on visiting some of the places that uh, W.B. Yeats wrote about, like Cool Park and uh, Sligo. It's ama- it was amazing. I just, I, uh, oh, yes, I, I'm all geeked out. <laughs> well, well, you're in addition to being an Irish literature geek, you're also a Clancy. So I imagine I am a Clancy. You must have and a Collins by marriage. And a Collins, so, yeah. by, so uh, it's a double, double Irish there. Uh, did you do you have relatives? Did you visit people? You know, we have um, relatives there, I think, um, but we haven't quite identified the link. My father's from Canada originally, and his Clancy relatives. We were a little bit confused about where they came in from, so we we got back to a certain point and. Uh, we know that someone's from from Ireland, and we've actually recently had some outreach um, from some people in Ireland that uh, think that, that that we have a mutual uh, ancestor. So, when I have a little bit of extra time, <laughs> we'll be doing a little bit more research. But uh, that popped up through one of those wonderful um, DNA uh, sites. So, anyway, I do know I have some. I just don't know who they are. I could have I could have met them, and I don't even know. And as you wrote in the Verge Energy newsletter this week. Uh, you, as you, you were doing a road trip, you saw a bunch of wind turbines. You know, it's funny. Um, as we started leaving Dublin and heading northwest, um, I, you know, I, I was driving. My friend was driving. You know, we kind of taking back, and I noticed across the landscape, which surprised me a little bit, but 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 in retrospect, shouldn't have, um, was wind turbines all over the place. Abundant wind resources across the Emerald Isle. And they're making use of them. Um, there were all, also the sort of NIMBY, if you will, not in my backyard signs up in different various places. And I, and I get that. Um, that's one of those moral dilemmas I have as a, as a person that advocates for clean power is, is obviously the very real landscape considerations like a tall turbine, you know, in the middle of, <laughs> like I said, Ben Bolden, the, the, the thing that, that uh, Yates wrote about in uh, the Sligo area. But um, you know, definitely a lot of uh, focus there on renewables. And in fact, the country, I, I'm sure you, you read about it when I did, is trying to ban all uh, fossil fuels extraction and exploration in, in the country. So they're, they're really trying to keep it out and get cleaner. Yeah. And Ireland is the EU state with the highest level of installed wind capacity yep. 
relative to its power consumption. So I think it's, uh, you know, they had, they, last year they had a 20% growth in wind energy installations and uh, wind has been uh, generating up to half of uh, power capacity of, over the past year. So that's, yep. uh, that's progress. And that, and that actually makes it really attractive for the data center companies, you know, that have presence there. You've got a lot of big uh, software companies that are there, including Microsoft. And so um, that's attractive. They can go there and actually be directly sourcing renewable energy, which is kind of a cool cool thing. So, Speaking of ancestral homes, uh, we have a, a, something we announced this week about my ancestral home, uh, where I'm sitting right now in Oakland, California. Um, that uh, the mayor of Oakland, Libby Schaff, uh, who we look out the window at Franco Gawa Plaza and City Hall, just 100 yards away, um, has proclaimed that the week of October 15th to 19th will be Oakland Clean Economy Week. And that, of course, is the week that Verge 18 will be taking place in Oakland. Um, and it's not a coincidence. We worked with her for this declaration. But what, what it is is an opportunity to to uh, expose, first of all, the Oakland and East Bay community to the Verge community and, and the technologies and things. We'll be closing off some streets around the convention center to, to build our microgrid, and, and, but also uh, inviting community organizations, of which there are quite a number, a growing number in Oakland and the East Bay, and of course, by extension, San Francisco and Silicon Valley, to uh, host events in Oakland that week. And so uh, we'll have a start small modestly this week. Next year we'll be in Oakland again, and hopefully there'll be a lot more. But uh, we're pretty excited about that. Yeah, that for me is really exciting because I, I'm obviously the, non, the non-native, the um, non being one of only two people that are not actually in that office there. And for me, this helps me understand the community there and, and also the impact that programs and clean economy initiatives can have on a, on a community, especially urban communities where they create jobs and, um, you know, really contribute to the resilience, the economic and sort of community resilience of, of the area. So it's exciting for me. And I, again, one of the reasons I just love working with this organization because, you know, the, the inclusiveness of doing such something like this is, is um, what will make this clean economy far more mainstream than it is now. Yeah, and there's so much exciting stuff going on here. We'll be, we'll be featuring. I mean, um, Bay Area Rapid Transit (BART), as it's known, is has a, a pretty big uh, clean energy play. Uh, we've just across the street from Franco Gawa Plaza is uh, the uh, California Clean Energy Fund (CalCEF), run by our good friend Danny Kennedy, who's been on this podcast. And there'll be uh, they're in force uh, sh- showcasing just so many of their initiatives they have with incubators around the world and and technologies uh, here in California. Um, we've got uh, Kaiser Permanente, one of the leading healthcare companies, it, well, the largest uh, HMO in the U.S., but one of the l- leaders in sustainability in healthcare based here in Oakland, Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. We've got incubators like Powerhouse. We've got the University of California headquartered here. Um, anyway, a lots of great organizations. And of course, our leadership, uh, local utility PG&E, uh, which has uh, been out the front of investor-owned utilities on renewable energy. Anyway, uh, enough of that little commercial, but we are excited about that. It's another reason to set your uh, calendar to be in Oakland that week. And um, if you're based here in the Bay Area, in the East Bay, or anywhere in Northern California, we hope you'll find reason to uh, at least stop by and see the the microgrid and, and, and other things 
uh, if you're not able to attend uh, Verge itself, although, of course, we hope you are. So that's that week. Let's go back to this week in review. Let's start this week with plastics. We had a piece this week by uh, two uh, people from BSR, Business for Social Responsibility, uh, on six actions that businesses can take across the plastics value chain. This has been fascinating to me. I'm working on a significant piece or two or maybe even three uh, that will run uh, in a few weeks uh, on sort of what I've been calling the war on plastic, which is this amazing uh, uptake and, and, and interest in plastic waste around the world. Uh, this has been a topic that's been around ever since the environmental movement, going back 30 or more years. But it's really just in the last year, in the last six months even, has, has taken on um, new urgency as we've looked at uh, the marine plastic and, and the not just annoying anymore, but actually a, a major hazard to uh, oceans and seafood, fish, and ultimately our ability to uh, coexist with the oceans. And, and so BSR came up with a series of six steps companies should be taking to look at plastic in their value chains. And, uh, you know, I have to say they're in, in some ways obvious, but in some ways not obvious at all, because most companies I don't think have gone through and, for example, generated baseline data on plastic use, recycling, and recovery rates. And uh, uh, and, and that's certainly, that's number one on their list. And I think that's just a good place to start. Yeah, I think that, you know, when you look at this particular issue, you know, to, to your point about the data, I think p the companies have a lot of data on what they're recycling, generally speaking, but not specifically plastic. And I think that this is the time now when we're getting a much better handle on the different types of plastics, right? So, you know, you mentioned the marine problem, but the, the other profoundly concerning issue is the whole microbead issue, right, of the, the fibers within other fabrics and so forth. Like we think, when you say plastics, you know, ocean plastics to someone, they get it. It's like obvious. They, they remember what they've seen on the beaches and so forth. But um, getting a handle on that plus what's coming out in the rivers and flowing into the ocean, like where does this stuff come from? I feel like we're finally getting a, a, the, the hunger to understand that, that flow, if you will, no pun intended, of where this stuff comes from, you know, because that's going to be part of the, it's not just people throwing things off boats or, you know, garbage spilled or whatever. It's, it's where does this come from? Well, like, how is it getting there? You know, what is it that, that we're doing? Um, and so I love this because, um, and I, and I really appreciate the, the sort of efforts on, on many companies parts to latch into the, the, the public interest in this, right? Because I, this seems like, you know, and you, 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 we, we are, we live in it and we see all the press releases about this and, and all the pitches and so forth. But this really does feel like the year of plastics, just like that suddenly, um, the corporate sector sort of got that this really is a, is a problem. And, and also that the public suddenly became like aware of the fact that this is really, this is really not cool and we need to address it. So I appreciate the data thing, but I also, um, I think, and this is pretty obvious, and I'm sure it'll come out in your reporting, this whole notion of um, it takes a village, if you will, and it takes collaboration um, of many different players, actors from the materials side all the way through to the collection side. And then, of course, the, the communities. Like, so how do you get the community involved? Well, through NGOs and public-private partnerships and so forth. So 
I'm fascinated by this issue and there's, there's a lot of debate and lots of opinions about this. So it's, which is awesome because that means that that stuff progress will start happening. Yeah. And what's really interesting about this to me is that uh, there's first of all, the, the whole behavioral part of, of getting people to change and all of a sudden people turning down straws, although that's, it's symbolic and lar- more than substantive. Uh, but also the, the flip side of that is what we're learning about the impact of plastics in the environment. And is this, this is some new stuff. I mean, we've known about the litter problem. We've known about some of the toxicity problems. But there's some new research that just came out from the University of Hawaii at Manoa that found that uh, when plastic is exposed to light, it begins to release methane and ethylene, two of the most problematic greenhouse gases. Although it's it's probably only a small percent of, of emissions, it's likely that those contributions will grow as the as plastic waste continues to grow, but and as the plastic that's out there continues to be further exposed to sunlight. But I did not know this. I don't think many people knew this. I think this is sort of new finding that that uh, methane and ethylene uh, you know, are a result of plastics just degrading in the environment. Methane, of course, being uh, very serious greenhouse gas that has a much higher global warming potential than carbon dioxide. Uh, this is another reason that this is taking on some urgency. It's not just the fish. It's not just the litter. It's choking uh, some rivers in Asia and Africa and less so in, in the developed world. But um, uh, it, this is really an important issue that we need to be paying more attention to. And thankfully, we are. So let's, speaking of behavioral things, so we had a piece this week uh, out of the Rocky Mountain Institute titled, Can Behavioral Economics Finally Get Americans to Stop Commuting by Single Occupancy Vehicles? You know, and, and speaking of issues that have been around a long, 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 long time, uh, this is one that's... Um, that's that's really at the top of the list as much as plastics. Uh, uh, over 85% of Americans still commute by car and some very high percentage of them commute one person in a three or 4,000 pound vehicle, which is to say it's a 20% occupancy rate uh, traveling down the highway uh, where, you know, some 80 or 90 percent of the energy is 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 being uh, used to move the car and very little of it is it actually moved the people and and so this is another thing that's been one of those tough tough nuts to crack you know i'm just curious like and you say a long 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 time but, it, but really it's been since sort of what the the rise of suburbs right where people live away from their jobs i mean it used to be that people would would have some job in their community and then they could potentially walk to, or they take the bus to, if they were in a city. Um, I'm curious, you know, it probably has been what really since the rise of post post World War II, right? I mean, it's just which is the last sixty or so years. Um, but yeah, 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 we wrote about this yeah. in our book, the new the new grand strategy, uh, sort of looking at because uh, and we, we focused on walkable communities and so we looked at the history of this and yeah, it was exactly as you're saying. The end of World War II, and part of that was a strategy to we built out the interstate highway and defense system, as it was originally called. Um, most people don't know that every bridge, overpass, and and tunnel has a height requirement that is 
basically sufficient to, to accommodate a truck with an ICBM missile. And that was part of the motivation for that system. And also part of it was to disperse the population uh, so they wouldn't all be centered in cities and making them, therefore making them less of a target if they were dispersed. And and then we had, you know, land was cheap and, and labor was cheap. We, we had lots of people returning from the war, uh, 15 million GIs who needed something to do. And so, yeah, we, we get into this building boom and road building and home building and and mall building and all of these things. Uh, and it was it, it was a part of the great growth of America. And now it's becoming a problem as we see that we are forced into our cars as everybody's forced into our cars. There's inadequate mass transportation. Um, people culturally are used to commuting by themselves and you know the options are are challenging even if you have rapid transit unless you live within a half mile of it you're probably going to want uh, some other way to get to and from that train station or bus station that's where we are so people are stuck still in their cars well i i do um think this is one of those things that technology will help um maybe you know to speak to the behavioral aspect of this again a little bit more detail I think it's the whole notion of like, is it coming, right? Is that bus coming on time? And how do you find out? I, I know that I um, rely when I do have to, I'm blessed to be, my commute is up my stairs <laughs> from my bedroom. <laughs> so, um, you know, I'm blessed to be someone that works at home. But when I do travel around uh, the, the New York area, I spend a, a few moments to understand um, how the trains look. Are they on time? Is this bus better? And I'm able to do that on my mobile, you know, I, on the various apps that the public transit agency has begun creating. And they've become better and better just in the past maybe two years even um, at really showing me if things are on time. And, and, and also PS offering me an option, like pointing to an option. So help that sort of ability to, you know, it's if people behaviorally speaking, they, they just need to know, <laughs> they need to know when they're going to get there. And um, I think that will have a, a huge impact on over time, not, not necessarily like tomorrow or anything, but over time in helping provide the options uh, or point to the options of, of addressing this. Um, so, you know, like when you, when you, when you think about that, um, plus to look even further in the future, I love the some of the, t the pilots of autonomous vehicles, for example, of creating routes where none, none existed before. Being able to take a smaller vehicle that does maybe a smaller radius of, of uh, neighborhoods in an, in an area, or maybe that goes from, you know, my, across my town here, my small, you know, northeastern, north New Jersey town um, of, of a, you know, but, but if it's a much smaller vehicle that could be automated and, and could get from point to A to B sort of when, when the riders need it, as opposed to on some sort of pre guest schedule, that could be a, a way of changing behaviors as well. So yeah, I think maybe technology will help. Maybe I'm just being my usual optimistic tech technophilic self. But <laughs> well, you are, and I'm, and I'm not, uh, I'm not sure I share that. I mean, I'm, it's, it, we've been down this road, so to speak, for a long, long time, and and despite the rise of uh, ride sharing, car sharing, bike sharing, scooter sharing, um, people still overwhelmingly choose to commute by single occupancy vehicle, um, and you know there's a number of 
of things, uh, uh, RMI, this is the basis of this, has a new report out um, looking at, at some of the, the options and behavioral changes and called mapping incentives to change. They discuss how commuting managers, uh, the people inside companies who are in charge of understanding planning and, and improving commutes for their employees and also uh, in, in cities for their, their citizens and others, and can take a number of steps uh, and some just to encourage behavioral change, even if you don't actually change the infrastructure much. And of course, that's still something that needs to happen. So lots to do here. And it's really interesting just to put this in perspective and then to reflect how your own organization's commuting habits and incentives are, are taking shape and changing over time. So I encourage this. And I also encourage people to read your story, Heather, which is really interesting. It's called Apple, Akamai, Etsy, and Swiss Re get together to buy clean power. So what the heck is going on there? Because it sounds a little bit like one of those, you know, four companies walk into a bar that don't seem to <laughs> belong together. Swiss Re, Etsy, Akamai, Apple, do tell. Well, actually, the, part of this might have started in a bar. <laughs> and I'm only slightly kidding because um, uh, so here, here's the thing. Um, this is a example of what we've been hoping for and talking about and wishing for and on the renewable electricity procurement side, you know, for a long time, which is an aggregated deal, uh, which is to say that these four companies basically said, you know, we have our, our individual, uh, clean power procurement needs. Um, the smaller ones, especially uh, Etsy and Swiss Re, uh, just couldn't quite find deals small enough. They could, they wanted to do a power purchase agreement, but their loads are, are far less than the 10 megawatt sort of um, threshold that seems to have appeared as, as, the, as the minimum load that someone can really get an individual deal signed on for. So what these companies did, um, Etsy was sort of commiserating with Akamai, and they decided to sort of look into, how, how, okay, how do we, how do we as buyers um, Get our get our, our ourselves together. Uh, present ourselves as a as a united front and sort of show the economics of this deal and make it more attractive. And then, lo and behold, Apple got involved, which of course um, was the the sort of linchpin of this of this deal. They have they have enormous buying clout. You know that. I mean, Apple has been made a tremendous number of renewable energy investments, both on site and of course through various power purchase agreements. And it's been very focused on helping others get involved as well. And, um, you know, this started as a conversation um, at various industry events, and then they, they, they decided to go for it. So what, what's the significance here? I mean, I, it feels like these kinds of collaborations are still pretty rare. Is this, uh, is this something that we'll be seeing more of, do you think? This is an incredibly rare example um, for a couple of reasons. Um, first of all, because they're Re they really, they did it with the help of three degrees, right? So they had an intermediary who sort of helped advise and I would say project manage the process, got everyone to be on the same page, helped make sure that the philosophies behind what they wanted in the, in the power purchase agreements were the same, helped Apple you know, understand what the loads were of the smaller companies. So they basically, the, the buyers set the stage, they, they set the, the rules, they set the sort of the criteria of what they wanted, and then three degrees helped them pull it off. Very rare, uh, like I said, for a number of reasons. Number one is because 
you need you need uh, if you will a champion um in in some way it could be a buy a buyer like here in on in the example of apple it could be a developer potentially like we've seen other examples i'll i'll um give an example of a a deal that i saw earlier this year i wrote about it in the um second quarter roundup that we we've started doing but Bloomberg was able to get uh, 17, 17 megawatts of power out of a wind project, partially because uh, General Motors got involved, right? And they bought, the General Motors bought the rest of the capacity. They bought something like 100 megawatts, if I'm remembering correctly. In that case, the developer sort of managed the aggregation, if you will, of those loads and figured it out. And, and they were the ones that kind of set the rules. Um, there's another example, which I love, out of Europe, uh, several companies, uh, again, actually a foursome, Axco, Nobel, Google, DSM, and Philips. They came together, and their model is a bit different. They're, they're sort of, a, an, a, they created a consortium. And in this model, they're, they're equal players. So each one of them has agreed to take on the same risk as the other ones. They're all buying the same capacity in the projects. They've all sort of committed to abide by each other's rules. So that's, so that's a different model. So back to your original question, do I think it's going to happen more? Um, I, think, I think that this may be one of the breakthrough deals that we need for that to happen. Uh, the Google, Google Axco, uh, Philips DSM deal was, was um, announced last December, although the deal, the power purchase agreements themselves have happened over the last couple of years. I think, I think this could be the log jam breaking. Um, but again, it will take champions, um, to help, to help do that, if you will, the central aggregation of this. Um, but it is an exciting deal. I, I've been hoping for <laughs> news like this for a while. And, um, it's an, it's an issue that we'll be exploring and at least in at least one session and probably more. It'll probably come up informally at Verge um, in, in October. So stay tuned. And, and if you're listening to this and you have stuff you want to announce, um, I'm all ears because I think there's some more out there <laughs> based on who's not returning my phone calls right now. So <laughs> I, think we, I think we will see more of these hopefully by the end of this year. Last month, 17 of New York's top marketing, advertising, and communications agencies came together with leading climate scientists to launch an effort to motivate urgent and collective action to address climate change. The coalition called Potential Energy was incubated by the creative consultancy Lippincott and its chief strategy officer, John Marshall, in partnership with the director of the Harvard Center for the Environment, Dan Schrage. John Marshall, who's president of Potential Energy, joins us now. Hey, John. Hello. Talk a little bit about how this came about. Yeah, happy to. Uh, actually, the, the prompt for this effort, which is probably appropriate given the, the challenges that we're facing, actually came from my 17-year-old son who took Dan Schrag's course at Harvard uh, called the Climate Energy Challenge and concluded uh, a couple of things. One was, well, the problem is a heck of a lot bigger than most of us realize. And secondly, the messaging around this is not really connecting. And he said to me, Dad, you're, you're a guy in the advertising business. You have connections. What are you going to do about it? And so I, uh, I took that as a challenge, and Dan and I basically made a decision that what if we brought the power of Madison Avenue to bear on the problem? Could we come up with some different, some creative, some alternative 
messaging strategies that might connect in a different way. And really trying to get out of the logjam where we don't have another 10 years to, to wait in terms of people really seeing what the problem is and what the solution is. So I um, basically used my network to call up you know, many of the leading executives in the marketing business, not just advertising firms, but social media and research and talent agencies and digital agencies and said, would you be willing to put pro bono teams to, uh, to try and take some fresh approaches to the issue? And got a surprising number of yeses. So we formed this entity called Potential Energy. And our goal is really to launch some new messaging strategies into the world to try and move the needle on not just awareness, but uh, that a sense that we can actually make progress on the issue. So to quote your son, what are you actually going to do about it? What's the plan? Well, I think that the first part of the plan is a realization that we need to think differently about what the narrative is and that um, quite honestly, traditional green narratives have not been connecting or haven't been connecting with a broad enough base of the audience in order to drive, you know, in order to drive the urgency. And we need a lot more public will. And to get to that public will, we're going to need a new narrative, one that, you know, depolarizes the issue and deliberalizes the issue and, you know, moves beyond traditional, you know, messages of more the environmental community and, and, and broadens it. So to start the work, actually, we, we said, well, let's do what we do with our corporate clients. Let's actually do the research. So uh, my team at Lippincott did a pretty significant amount of market segmentation where we actually took 6,000 voters and we really tried to come up with a segmentation that could sort out how do you actually connect with the broad community. And what's interesting when you do when you look at the segmentation is the traditional environmentalist community is only 13% of the voting populace. And so, you know, the question we asked ourselves was well, how do we actually have climate messages or clean energy messages or renewable energy messages that connect with the other 87? How do they think? How do they, what do they value? You know, what motivates them? What tribes do they live in? You know, using the, using the marketer's toolkit to say, how do we actually make this relevant? And the, you know, the traditional messages of species protection and polar bears and ice caps and so forth clearly hasn't been doing enough of the job. So we're basically launching on a program that uses the segmentation as a core driver of thinking differently about messaging. And when you when you do that, you end up with some very different strategies than, you know, the ones that are typically really sold into the base of environmental organizations as opposed to a broader set of folks. And I think, you know, the bigger goal would be let's make this an urgent priority for the majority of Americans. Right now, the percentage of people who see this as a very serious problem is you know, hovering around 20% and hasn't moved much over the course of the last 20 years. So we'd like to make a significant move um, in that by thinking more empathetically and creatively about how you, how you connect with people. So what happens with these uh, messages? Obviously, you don't have a, a fund to, f- to actually pay for placement. And uh, is, is this, are these going to be public service campaigns? Are you going to hope that some of your client companies pick these up? Uh, how does this turn into uh, to the kind of reach you hope to get? Yeah, all of the above. I think, you know, the advantage of the, of the social age that we live in is that you know, we can break through at much lower cost and we can learn at much, much lower cost. And so we can figure out what's actually working and then scale behind that. I do think that it's definitely one of our plans to do this in a way that there's corporate participation because it's really in the interest of a pretty big majority of companies to be developing solutions that are planet friendly and that are climate friendly. And this is, you know, I describe this as the biggest capitalist opportunity we've ever seen. And so we do think as it evolves over time, there's an opportunity for company partnerships to get the message out. Uh, We're going to start with segments that we think have high leverage 
uh, where we can try and make significant progress and do a significant amount of heavy digital engagement, heavy social engagement, and a tremendous amount of measurement. And the good news these days is one can do that pretty effectively in order to test and learn new kinds of messages that, uh, that are able to connect. It'll be really interesting because there's, as you know well, uh, such a broad range of opinions from climate change is a hoax, that it's not happening, that it's happening, but it's not caused by people, that it's caused by people, but uh, we can't really do anything about it, or you know, America can't uh, do it without the rest of the world, um, or it's going to tank the economy, uh, all the way to this is a problem and I'm sort of concerned, but it's too far off in my kid's lifetime, uh, not mine. Uh, all the way to, you know, this is an existential threat that we must deal with yesterday. Um, so it, how do you bridge all those those various perspectives? Yeah, well, I think, you know, one, a segmented approach is important. And, you know, the dominant messages right now tend to go, as I said, after a fairly narrow segment. And there are ways to appeal to people who don't think about this, you know, as much. I think secondly, and this, this we've uh, we've gotten a lot of help and input from Tony Lazarowitz, who's got a tremendous body of research from the Yale Center of Climate Communications. And one of the big issues is actually salience. Like a, a fair number of people actually do agree with the statement, climate change is real and it's human caused, but not that many think people think about it very often. I think the numbers that people think about it or talk about it, you know, once every four weeks. And so part of success for the effort is driving what I would call a contextual marketing machine where we can have people think about it in different ways and more frequently. Um, I'm struck by the fact that so many things are happening, you know, floods and fires and so forth, but the, uh, the degree to which that's attached in a really smart marketing way to a climate narrative is pretty low. And so I think in getting the salience of the issue up by using, you know, maybe channels that people don't typically use, access, you know, deeper access to Hollywood and talent, you know, more prevalent creative tactics in social media, you know, things that, you know, create a little bit more buzz and quite honestly are really unexpected. And so our goal is to bring some of the most creative people on the planet to this issue and come up with crazy, weird, new ideas, test those and try and launch those because we don't have time for the existing messages to uh, to continue to not uh, not work. Well, when you look back in two or three years, how will you know if you're succeeding? Well, it's it's a good question. If I think about other issues, there have been a series of you know major progress, you know, in this country in terms of cultural change and attitudes and other issues. 40-point increase over the course of 20 years in approval for interracial marriage. 35-point increase uh, or change in the in the opinions about should the primary breadwinner be the man or not. Like 38% who view smoking in a different way. Gay marriage over a decade, the approval for it went up by 30 points. And so it's possible to change attitudes on this. It's possible to change culture. And in many, many ways, culture actually leads politics, right? It was that exactly when gay marriage approval got to 50-50 that, uh, that we made progress at the federal level. So we do want to make, you know, that kind of progress on the climate change issue and have, you know, the number of people who say this is an urgent priority that can and will be addressed, you know, go up at least by 10 percentage points over the next few years. And I think that's a tall order. It's a, it's a hard problem, but I think it's something that has got to happen. And so we're trying to bring as many media and creative and talent resources to bear to, to move the needle on that. Well, I'm rooting for you. It sounds like a, a terrific coalition and uh, with a lot of great potential, and that's in the name. John Marshall is Chief Strategy Officer at the Creative Consultancy Lippincott and President of Potential Energy. Thanks so much, John. Thank you. Glad to be here.
And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find more about the organization, stories and events we mentioned in this episode. While you're there, check out the link to our other podcast, Center Stage, the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. You can hit us up by email. 350 at greenbiz.com is our email address. We always love to hear from you. GreenBiz 350's director is Stephanie Joyce. Elsa Wenzel is our managing editor. Heather and I will be back next week for another edition of GreenBiz 350. Until then, from all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening. <laughs>